go to John chapter 8. And uh, I told you it may take a couple of weeks here to work through uh, this one section uh, because I think that what I see, at least what I see here in John chapter 8 and 9 are a couple of things that Paul's... Uh, Paul, <laughs> I teach Romans every week, okay? so And I've been to Kansas, so my brain is still waiting to get rebooted. So uh, I told... Anybody see the movie Escape from New York? Yeah, well, that was yesterday. Escape from <laughs> Kansas. Uh, that uh, that Jesus is dealing with a couple of things here. That I mean, they're big issues. Uh, I already told you what they are. In my judgment, what they are is Jesus is uh, discussing this matter about a relationship with Him. What does it mean to have a relationship with Him? And then what is our relationship to sin? That's a big deal, isn't it? Something we, we, we deal with on some, some frequency. And then in chapter 9 is, is this understanding of this relationship to sin and suffering. Which a lot of people ask, what is that relationship between sin and suffering? Or is there a relationship? And Jesus really addresses that in chapter 9. So that's where, that's where we're headed in this idea of these relationships, if you will, uh, that are mattering. Now, I'm saying that this is, uh, part of this <clears throat> is shining the light on this because Jesus said in John 8, 12, uh, you can go back there, I'm the light of the world. This is one of those uh, statements uh, in, the, in the Gospel of John where Jesus used the word, I am, which is a similar derivative or a uh, the, the, the Greek version of when uh, in the Old Testament, vayahi or hayah, I am that I am. And so Jesus in lots of different occasions in the Gospel of John uses this language, I am, which declares his divinity, that he's God in the flesh, and so he's making some pretty brash and powerful statements about these relationships. I said, when I am the light of the world, I think that in this section he brings light on relationships. The light on relationships. And we already looked at that before. We'll, 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 we'll deal with that uh, uh, some more in the future. But, you know, relationships, isn't that really most like, uh, you, you, I'd say you'd think this, that, that it's, it's relationships that produce, uh, provide the greatest challenge in life, aren't they? Having relationships, keeping relationships, operating in relationships, working in relationships. I, I've often said that, and I really mean this. I, I hope it's not too soon. Uh, my doctor this past week said it won't, maybe. Uh, I actually got a needle this week. Yeah, wow. <clears throat> Stop that sympathy clapping. <laughs> uh, no, you survived uh, it. I did survive it. I did. Yeah, I will tell you later. Uh, uh, but I've often said, really, and, I, and this, this, I'm not feigning this to say that at my funeral, I hope there are ten men that I've developed a relationship with so deeply that when they come to my funeral, they won't look at their watch. Right? That's my goal. I've got about three, so I'm taking, applica <laughs> taking applications. Uh, be, because, uh, really, isn't life about relationships? Isn't that the most important thing? I mean, as we get a little older and, and a little smarter, uh, that, 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 that's what life is about. I, I sent a couple of texts and, and uh, some guys, and I'm always reminded of this relationship. Uh, William Butler Yates uh, made this great statement. It's kind of one of my life statements now. Steve Kalmar helped me with this and some others. But when William Butler Yates said this, Think where a man's glory most begin and ends, and say that my glory was that I had such friends. That's, that's, that's a life statement, isn't it? Think where a man's glory both begins and ends and say that my glory was that I had such 
friends. That's what life's about, isn't it? Relationships, friendships, getting to know people, having those kinds of glorious relationships uh, that, that bring meaning to life. And I think that, that Jesus here is really helping us or trying to help us as the light of the world to shine some light on some relationships. And we'll look at that. We saw this last week. I'm going to do this real quick. The light on a relationship with Jesus. We talked about this. If you want to listen to it, it was recorded. In my, I think it was. Bob, was it recorded? Yeah, good. We, by the way, we record these every week, and they're on the website if you're, if you're interested. Uh, or if you're having trouble going to sleep, I can put you there quick. Just about like propofol. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus said that if you continue in my word, then you truly are my disciple. We, we discussed that. Oh, look. And then uh, we see this. The, the light that Jesus begins to shine on the relationship of sin. Notice here in John 8 when he says in verse 31, So Jesus was saying those who believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the, descendant are, and they, and the Jews answered him, We're Abraham's descendants, have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we become free? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word, remember that's what he said back in 831, that if you continue in my word, you're true to my disciples, but if because my word has no place in you. I speak these things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you've heard from your father. Jesus goes on. Let, let, I want to look at this here because Jesus, I think, is shining some light here on this matter about the relationship that we often have with sin. Let, let's look at it here. Number one on this thing right here, we looked at it, is sin and slaves. That's pretty clear here in 32 to 34 where Jesus, uh, if you will, says, he who continues to commit sin is a slave to sin. Now, we, we discussed this, so I'm not going to take a lot of time on this, but... I would suggest to you that what Jesus says here when he says everyone who commits sin, the, the participle or the verb there in that particular passage is what we call a present dirtive. It means he sins and keeps on sinning. Sins and keeps on sinning. It's, it's the idea of a continuation. It's the idea of a continual kind of life. Uh, some have suggested that it means just a lifestyle of that. If you're interested uh, more in that, uh, look at 1 John 3, 16 later, and, or 3, 6, and you can see that. This idea of continuing. You know, it's, it's interesting here because Jesus makes this is a pretty strong statement. Who commits? And if you don't understand the verb here, you might say, well, does that mean a, a person who ever commits a sin uh, is a slave? I, I'm not, I don't think Jesus is saying that because of the way he says it here. And, and I would, I'd make it this way. John Wesley made this observation at times, uh, and we'll, we'll look at this in more detail, when he said it's not that a Christian or follower of Jesus can't sin. The question is, do they have to? That's the question. It's not that they can't. We, we, we know that, right? We've got several uh, witnesses in this room who would say, I have sinned since I've been a follower of Jesus, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a several witnesses. I could call on you if you want me to. No. Uh, I've, I've done that. It, it's not that the Christian can't sin. The question is, do they have to? And we're going to look at that because that is directly related uh, to this idea. And so how does sin enslave? I'm going to give a couple things here real quick. Number one, by misplaced trust. This is what Jesus is referring to, I think. I think Jesus is referring to the slavery of sin because of misplaced trust. Notice, notice what he says. they say in verse 32. They answer, we're, we're Abraham descendants. 
And we've never been enslaved. And we, we talk about that a lot. That's, that's kind of humorous when you think about the Persians and the Assyrians and the Syrians and the Mesopotamians and the Greeks and the Romans and every army that ever walked through that area enslaved them. What in the world are they saying here? Now, I said last week, it, it can be, again, that you can be so opposed to a position that you can't even think straight, right? My dad bought a, a, a magnet for me when I was in college, or seminary, and it said this, everybody is entitled to my opinion, <laughs> you know, right? Yeah, I, thought, I was all hurt uh, when, when he said that. Or this other statement that don't confuse me with the facts, my mind is made up, right? You know, this idea that they are, they are so committed to this idea that we're okay, we're fine because we're Abraham's children to make this kind of a bizarre statement. I mean, this is absolutely ludicrous to say. We've never, there's a big Roman guard right behind them where they're talking about this and a big Roman eagle over the area there by the temple that would remind them, and the Tower of Antonia on the side there of the temple area, that would remind them they're sort of enslaved. But is Jesus here again referring to this notion that sin, or being so committed to this idea that we're okay because we're Abraham's children, has rendered them just almost non-functional? It's amazing. How is it that that can happen? Well, here these people have misplaced being children of Abraham with being children of God. Children of Abraham with being children of God. And they've confused this and thought, well, if we're children of Abraham, it must mean we're okay. But it's not true. Sin will enslave us when our faith... Let me say it this way. So you can write this down. Uh, sin will enslave us when we put our faith in the wrong object. Sin will enslave us when we put our faith in the wrong object. And I would say there are two objects that we generally wrestle with here. Here they are. I, I try to boil this down for my students, and I want to give it to you. There are two objects for your faith. God and not God. <laughs> okay? How, is that simple enough? I told you I've been to Kansas. <laughs> uh, the object of your faith is what's going to determine whether you're free or slave. Whether, whether you're enslaved by sin or not. Uh, I, I, I've, I've said this before, and you've heard me say it, but it's not as important how much faith you have as it is the object of your faith. There are people that believe strongly in things. You know, somebody had a dream last night or opened up a fortune cookie, and they're taking their paycheck to go play the lottery. Why? They believe so strongly they're going to win the lottery, so they go and spend all that money on it. But guess what happens? They don't, lose, they don't win the lottery, do they? Why? Because the object of their faith is unreliable. The object of their faith is unreliable. And so often in life, what Jesus is saying here, the object of your faith is your heritage, your history, your background, your training, all of these kind of things. And He's saying, that's not going to work. That will enslave you in sin because your heritage and my heritage has no capacity to deliver us if our faith isn't in Jesus Christ. Now, I've used this before. I'm going to say, you know, here we go. Uh, here, let me help you with your object real quick. Okay? Don't answer this out loud. Okay? But here's the... I was trained years ago, and some of y'all were to an EE, Evangelism Explosion. And we used to go to talk to people, and, and uh, we were trained how to share the gospel with people. And we'd ask them the question, if you were to die tonight, do you know you'd go to heaven? And... 
you know, and, and that's pretty intrusive. You know, we were like this <laughs> sometimes. And uh, so if you were to die tonight, you know, go to, and, and, if, and if a person would say no, we'd say, well, would you like to know how you could? And we would share the gospel with them. But if somebody said, yes, I know I would, uh, what I wanted to do was say, hello, you see, I'm going somewhere. <laughs> it's great. Thanks. Uh, got my job done. But I was trained to ask this question to follow it up. To say this, if let, let's say that you did die tonight and you were to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you tell Him? I was trained that the next thing that came out of that person's mouth was the real object of their faith. I heard people say this, I've tried to live a good life. Wrong object. I've been baptized. Wrong object. I've helped feed the poor. It's great, but wrong object. I've, uh, I've, I've lived a pretty clean life. I, wrong object. The right object is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross in my behalf. Right? That's the right object. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. See, what's the object here? And, and I want to say this to you. I, I'm going to leave this. But it seems to me in Christian circles today, there's too much talk about how much faith. There's too much talk about that. There's not enough talk about what is the object of your faith. Because you can have a boatload of faith in the wrong object, and it's not going to work. And Jesus said you could have a, a, a mustard seed of faith in Him, and I move a mountain. This is important now. What is the object of your faith? What is it you're truly trusting in? And so this is where sin enslaves. Let me say, you know, you know this. I have to give you any information. G.K. Chesterton, the great Roman Catholic uh, theologian in England, used to say that there's one doctrine in the Bible that is empirically uh, verifiable. You, you, can, you can verify it by fact. Fallen human nature. <laughs> you don't have to read a book about that one, do you? Did you, did you have to read a book about if your children were fallen from Adam? <laughs> did you have to go to theology class to figure that out? No, that, that's, that's observable, right? And so the object here, we're no match for this. So Jesus says, you've got your misplaced trust. This is the other thing real quick. Uh, somewhere in your, oh yeah. Misplaced trust. Number B, by not knowing the difference of temptation and sin. By not knowing the difference. We, we, we discussed it just for a minute. And I, I tell you, this Mac has been driving me crazy today. Uh, this may not be on your outline, is it? It's good. Okay, good. I don't like to spiritualize everything, but I thought, man, I have more trouble putting this lesson together than any lesson I've had in years. Really, I'm serious. And I don't know if it's because I went to Kansas. could be. <laughs> That's a, that's a cheap one, wasn't it? Or, or, or no kidding, I, I don't like to spiritualize everything, but to say, I'm going to talk about some things today that I don't, hear, I don't hear talked about much. I don't hear it much. You know, I think people are trapped in sin because they're not actually sinning, they just think they are. They don't know the difference between temptation and sin. They don't know the difference. I, I talked about that last week. If you want to look at it, go ahead, you can. Uh, or listen to it uh, and see not having a working definition of sin. I, I'm not saying that the Christian life is lived by a definition. 
But I, I will tell you this, as I've worked through this over the years, how we get trapped is I don't think we know what sin is. I really don't. I, I know it means to miss the mark, hamartia. I know it means to take the wrong step, parabasis. I know it means to step across the line, uh, or parapeteo, parabasis. I know it means crookedness. All those are definitions, but they don't help me. And I grew up in a church that, in my judgment, treated sin from a symptom basis. Right? From a symptom basis. We had a long list of symptoms. I've told you before, my church had a long list, and I found a church that didn't have all my symptoms, and I wanted to go to it. Because it was a lot more fun going to that church. You know? And, and uh, without getting too graphic here, you know, I had, a, I had a physical, I had a test this week, a medical test. And uh, when I had gone in to talk about it, I said, I probably need this test. They said, yeah, you're about 10 years late. And I said, well, I hate to get in a hurry. And uh, just not like that. And I said, uh, but I'm fine. You know, you're practicing medicine without a license. I told this doctor, I said, I'm fine. I don't have any symptoms. He said, the kind of thing you could have could be asymptomatic. I thought, that's why you guys are making all this money. So if I don't have any symptoms, I must be fine, right? Except in some diseases, you could be being eaten alive, right? You're asymptomatic. In, in the churches I grew up in, sin was always the symptom. I lied, I stole, I cheated. There's nothing wrong with understanding that those are behaviors. But can I tell you something? You can stop all those behaviors and still not be a follower of Jesus. You can be moral and you can be good and you can stop. But see, again... We need a definition. I'm going to give you two definitions here, I think. I think I put this on here. No, I didn't. So I'll have to say them to you. <clears throat> here we go. The first one, the first definition of sin, I, I call it self-rule. Self-rule. R-U-L-E. I'm going to give you a couple of passages. Jesus talked about this, and you can go look at them. Self-rule. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Jesus hears that John the Baptist has been put into prison. And he begins to say, the time is fulfilled. The rule of God, that's a good way to translate kingdom. It means the rule of God. Or if there's a kingdom, there's a ruler. The rule of God is here. Turn around. Change your mind. That's what the word repent means. The word, the word repent means change your mind. Change your mind. The, the rule of God is here. I want to suggest to you that this is what Jesus talked about more than anything else. Jesus talked about the kingdom, the rule of God more than he talked about forgiveness, more than he talked about heaven, he always spoke of the rule or the kingdom of God. If you did a statistical study in the New Testament Gospels, you'd realize this. This is what he talked about all the time. Because he was saying, you need to change your mind about the rule of God. What does that mean? It means this. There's a new rule. It's the rule of God. And sin is when I refuse to change my mind about who's in control here. See, Jesus is saying the, the control or the rule of God is here. Change your mind. Is that just means an intellectual thing? No, it, it's the idea. I, I'm, I'm going to change my mind about who's in control here. I'm going to change my mind about who's in directing my life. There are a lot of us that are, when I, before I was a follower of Jesus, I was a pretty moral person. But I basically told God to keep His hands off my life. I was a pretty moral person. You know, I, you know, I, Smoked some crayons and, you know, some stuff like that. <laughs> Burned a couple of buildings down, then went to the fifth grade. And then, uh, you know, I mean, I, no, I was a good kid. I, you know, I wasn't a good kid, but I, okay, here we go. Uh, 
But I was a pretty moral kid. But I, I, I just wanted God to keep his nose out of my business. I said, you know what, I'll make the call here. I'll, I'll, I'll decide what I'm going to do. And Jesus comes to offer us the kingdom of God, the rule of God to say, change your mind. Get a different perspective here, Cliff. Get a different view about who is in control. And, and that's what Jesus talked about. Mark 1, 14 and 15. He said, look, we need, so, so I can, you know, I, I've told my students before, I, I've seen church people that wanted their way no matter what. It didn't matter if it was the truth or if it was the best or not. They were going to get their way one way or the other. Why? Because they were so self-ruled. You know? I mean, really, I'm, I, I just want to be honest. Let's get the symptoms out of the way for a while, lying, stealing, cheating, all that. And let's come back to the nub of this thing that's saying, I want my way and I'm going to do what I think no matter what at all. Gary? Right, for the sake of the recording, you're saying it hasn't, in denominationalism, the idea of different churches, different groups, they kind of got their own list. Like I said, you know, the, I found that the United Methodists didn't think dancing was wrong. They actually had dances after football games. That's when I wanted to move my membership. <laughs> right, my church thought dancing was a sin. You know, they used to say, you know, can Christians dance? And I'd say, well, some can and some can't. That's just about <laughs> all, that's my, that's basically my position. <clears throat> you know, it's an oldie but a goodie, Ken. Uh, so, so we've been symptomatic. You know, I, I, I hear people still say, you know, I, I'm not getting a tattoo until they make them without needles, right? I, mean, I got a couple of them from the, you know, the gum paper, like that. <clears throat> but I mean, I've known people that just go berserk about a kid getting a tattoo. And I'm thinking, what, what's the problem? I mean, I'm not suggesting everybody, everybody's going to go get a tattoo today, right? <laughs> You know, I mean, the context of some of those things in the ancient world were not that they were trying to look cool. It was that they belonged to another God. This had all kinds of religious ramifications. Not like you just want to put your girlfriend's name on your arm or the Dallas Cowboys or whoever, you know, whoever they are. But I mean, I've, I've seen churches go berserk about it. I, when I was a kid growing up, I always heard them say, you know, when women, when some of us are old, the rest of y'all are under 40, just take a nap. Um, <laughs> Do you remember when women started wearing pants to church? Woo! Right? I had some guy come to me one time. He said, you know, Levit... And I, again, man, when you start referring to the Old Testament about all the stuff you're trying to do, be careful. And they said to me, you're going to Bible college? Yes. Yes, I am. Uh, they said, uh, you know, or people, what, what, women wearing clothing that is uh, like right here. If any woman wears uh, clothing like a man... I said, you do know when that was written, everybody was wearing a dress, right? It's called a robe. Man, I, you know, you just... But I mean, they're all up about it, excited. Ah! I'm thinking, dude, they weren't wearing Levi's back then, okay? They were wearing robes. And they all looked the same, right? Girls looked a little better, but I mean, you know. I got to stop. <laughs> uh, but, but because we, we, we're treating symptoms, we never deal with the issue. It's self-rule, guys. I have to watch this in my own life. If I think I'm right and somebody else is wrong, and I want to show them I'm right and they're wrong, 
The Spirit of God will check me at times and say, you're getting a little self-ruled here, Cliff. You don't have to be right. You don't have to let everybody know you're smart. You don't have to correct every error in life. Because you are not to be in control. You're to submit to my control, not yours. I'm telling you, a lot of our lives would be a lot better if the first question we ask, what does Jesus want me to do here? And let Him rule me. Does that make sense? I'm telling you, this will work. I, I will tell you this when I was a pastor. I had some people in my church didn't like it. When I, when I define sin like this. They want me to talk about smoking and drinking and dancing and cussing and chewing and going with the girls who do. Right? That's what they wanted. And I said, no. Demanding to have your way in a board meeting can be self-ruled. Demanding that the church buys the certain kind of stuff you like just because you like it. Because you've you know, dressed us up all with religious language. For the glory of God. Yeah. Not really. Self-rule. Are you aware of that? That Jesus said, the rule of God is here. Change your mind. Change your mind. My perspective now is that Jesus rules me. Whatever He says, however He responds, what do you want me to do? I, I, I think lying and stealing and cheating and all those things are the outgrowth of a life that's self-ruled. And I think some of our lists are, have nothing to do with sin. Because people aren't doing it to be ugly and mean. They just don't know any better. There's no selfishness here. There's no self-will. There's no determination to rebel against God. Self-rule. I'll give you another one. Because I'm, I'm not interested in symptom management. And I don't think Jesus... And I think if, if you and I think that all sin is, is sin, we're going to be mastered by it. Because a lot of us are going to have trouble getting all of our symptoms straightened out. The second one is this. Misdirected love. Misdirected love. In Mark 12, 28 to 31, in Mark 12, 28 to 31, go, go read this later, a scribe comes to Jesus and says this, hey, he would say, hey, <laughs> not really. I think I've had too much caffeine this morning, but wherever Becky is, could you bring me... <laughs> I need some carbohydrates. Jesus, a, 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 guy, a, a, a lawyer came to Jesus and said, what is the greatest commandment? I've been fascinated by this because I don't, I've not heard people, many people re reflect on this. When Jesus, he said, what's the greatest commandment? And, and Jesus said, Shema Israel Eronai Echad. He said, the Lord, or he says, hear, listen, Shema, listen up. That's a command. Did you know that? Hear. He said, what is the first, what is the great, he said, the first is, hear, listen, in other words. That word, shema, or hear in Hebrew, is a verb, it is a command. So the first commandment is to listen up, right? You should have a coach that say that. Listen up. When he did, we, okay, you know, and when we didn't, we paid for it. So it's here, and it says, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, if that's the duty of human beings, if that's what we're to do, we're to hear and love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor. Those are the two commands. I always used to get confused. Where are the two? Where are the two? The first one is, and the second one is like it. Love the Lord. So, so here's the idea. Sin is when 
We take the capacity we have as human beings to love because we have a measure of freedom. That's what makes us human, by the way. Some of you. <laughs> That's what makes us human. We're not instinctual. We don't have to do things. We don't have to do something. We have the, enough freedom to choose what we love or not love. That's when we take that capacity to love and love something or someone else in the place of God. It can be a lot of things. It can be people. It can be things. It can be activities. You know, I always, when I, when I teach this, a lot of times my, I'll generally have a girl who's sense, spiritually sensitive will come to me and start crying and say, oh, I'm afraid, Dr. Sanders, I love my boyfriend more than I love God. And I'm going, I, yeah, I don't get that either, you know. And she's, and she's crying, and, and, I understand, and I'll say to her, that's not possible. You couldn't love God more than you love your boyfriend. Why is that? Because you're here talking to me about it. You couldn't. If you did, you wouldn't worry about it. You wouldn't think about it. You wouldn't even consider it. The fact that you are concerned about it and want to make sure you keep things in adjustment and right proves you don't love your boyfriend more than you love God. Listen, I love Becky. I'd do anything I could for her. But she knows, and we've talked about this before, I know she loves God more than she loves me. That's a little hurtful, but you know. But I know it. And I can love her with all of my heart to the extent that she doesn't say, now Cliff, I'd like for you to disobey God by doing this. Can't ever imagine Becky doing that, can you? She's the one person I don't ever send. Her and Christian Grubbs, I don't think they ever send. <clears throat> I'm serious. I went to Christian's little way and I thought, she's never sinned. <clears throat> but, but the idea of loving something or someone else more than God. It's not that people are being bad. They're misdirecting their love. They're allowing an idol or something to take the place. It might be money. It might be freedom. It might be vacations. It might be another person. It might. It, who knows what? It could be all kinds of things. But sin is when love gets misdirected. It's, it's when love gets to the point that we start loving out of, out of barrier, if you will. I, 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 when, I, when I read this, when I studied, I thought, this is the essence of it. See, sin is not just a behavior issue. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. That's, that's why, why Jesus said, or the prophet said, I'm going to give you a new heart and a, and a new goal. I, I'll tell you this, in reaching, reading Richard Rorson, uh, which I recommend a book called Breathing Underwater, he really got a hold of me one day. When, as I was reading through it, I, I, I wrote this in the margin, which kind of embarrassed me. But, but I wrote this and I thought, much of my obedience in my life to God has been the result of either the fear of punishment, the fear of punishment, you know, if you do something wrong, something bad's going to happen, or the promise of reward. When I thought about that, I thought, now wait a minute, Cliff. If much of your obedience is just the fear of punishment or the promise of reward, who is still in control here? It's about me. See, that's that selfishness, isn't it? It's about me. I don't want to get hurt, and I do want to be rewarded. Instead of my obedience issuing from a fact of God's love to me and my desire to please Him. 
what if your love got redirected to this instead of ourselves? What if your and my love got directed to this? That every time I'm tempted or I face a situation, my first question is this, how can I honor and please God in this situation? Not how, oh, I better not do this or I'll get hurt. Or if I do the right thing, I'll get rewarded. How would our lives change if we said, my love is the issue. God, I want my love to be such that it pleases you and honors you and gives, Dick Greenlee will say this every once in a while, say, it puts a smile on God's face. See, that's redirecting our love back to God where it de deserves to be. Redirecting that love. Now, don't try this at home, okay? I'm a professional. Do not try this at home. Don't go home thinking this. Well, i got to love God more. That's not going to work. Don't, don't go home thinking, well, I've got to love God more now. That's the answer. Cliff told me today that, mis that sin is misdirected love, so I've got to go home, and I'm going to love God if it kills me. <laughs> and it will. <laughs> right? You get a little statement that comes from 1 John 4.19. It says this. We love because He first loved us. Get this out of balance, out of order, and it will drive you crazy. Get the sequence messed up, and there'll be all kinds of problems. You've heard this, I'll tell you again. My favorite quote from John Wesley is this. True Christian living is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm glad he didn't stop there. He, he quoted, he said, true, true Christian living is to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Listen to this very carefully. But you cannot love God until you're convinced He loves you. Hear that? You can't love God on your own. You don't have the capacity. I mean, some of you are really nice people. I know that. Sort of. You don't have that kind of capacity. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. And if sin is misdirected love, then it is in some sense, if you will, only remediated, only able to be dealt with if we understand that God loves us first. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said on this. Charles Spurgeon said this, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. Listen to that. When I thought God hard and harsh, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind and so good and so loving, so overwhelming and so overflowing with compassion, I beat my own breast to think that I could have ever rebelled and sinned against Him. Let me tell you how sin masters you here. If you think God is mean and hard and harsh and wants a pound of flesh from you, you will find sin enticing and glamorous and desirable. It's when we truly understand that we can't love until we know we've been loved by God that the heart is really set. This isn't just religion. This isn't just trying harder. This is the Son setting us free. If we understand that it's a love issue. It's not a behavior issue. That's what the symptom 
So Jesus can set us free, but this is how sin, if you will, blocks us. The son frees. Look at verse 35 and 36. The slave, or if, if, uh, whoever commits sin or slaves, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain. For if the son makes you free, you're going to be free indeed. Now I want to, I want to give you three areas. Yeah, Jerry. Yeah, for the sake of recording, I, I think that is true. Jerry is saying this, that I, I think that in some ways, um, un, unless we understand the gravity, the depth of our sin, we don't ever understand the depth and gravity of God's grace. We just don't. Uh, it, it, it's a, there's a fascinating correlation. If you want to see this, go read Romans 1 through 4 and see how Paul helps people understand the gravity of their sin before he offers, if you will, uh, the, 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 the antidote uh, to that. So I think, and I think we've sometimes been tried to be too therapeutic, and I'm not using that term necessarily in a psychological way, but we tried to make people feel too good before we wanted to make them feel the truth of what God does. Absolutely. If I had time, I'd tell you a story, something I did in a Romans class one time that blew their minds about this understanding of that, but I, maybe we'll do it later. But let me, let me have you look here for a second when he sets you free. I, I'm gonna, I, I want to look at uh, two or three things here that G, we're not going to finish today. Is that a <laughs> I keep looking and thinking, I can get through this, but this is too important now because this is, this is where we live every day, isn't it? This is where we live every day. We're not talking about theory here. I want to tell you, first of all, the sun sets us free from the penalty of sin. From the penalty of sin. In John 3, 16 to 18, in John 19, 30, the language here has to do with Jesus forgiving our guilt. This is the common understanding of the New Testament, that when we're forgiven, that we're, set us, we're, we're, we're forgiven from some debt, or in, in the Bible, the language is that of a law court. It's that of, a, of being, being judged, of being in front of a judge. And Jesus here, in John 3, that's where we'll see, He sets us free from the penalty of sin, if you will. We, be, we, we should be penalized for this, or we should, we, there should be some judgment based on that. But Jesus forgives us, and that judgment idea, He says, everyone who believes me does not come into judgment, but passes from death unto life. So the idea of penalty is paid here. It's fascinating to me that, that we understand. We get this. In fact, I'm going I'm to stop here today, but this, this one's easy for most of us. We know we've done something wrong. Jesus paid the penalty, and because of that, we can go on, or we feel like we have some freedom in life. That, that we, we get that. Here, here's where I think it's interesting, though. For some of us, we're not quite sure about that. I talk to people all the time that want to re rehearse and remember something in the past. We'll say to them, have you asked God to forgive you? you can, yes. Then, then, then what do you think? Because they really don't believe that the penalty has been paid. I struggled with that for years. That I, I couldn't believe that God would, for Christ's sake, for anybody struggle with that? I, I, I struggle with that. That God, for Christ's sake, would forgive me. It, it's amazing. And, and, and what I found in my life, I'll just give it to you this way. That the penalty, because I, I had trouble believing that. I had trouble understanding that when he says he, he shall not pass from death, going to death, but life. I lived a lot of my Christian life, life like this. 
I lived like I was not forgiven, but on probation. You understand that? Not really forgiven, just on probation. You know, if a person commits a crime and then they go on probation, they get to stay out how long? Until they do something again. And then when they do something again, they go right back. I, I think I have lived over time in my life where I lived as if I was on probation, not forgiven. Does that resonate with anybody? That, that idea that, that yeah, God says He does, but He's keeping it, and if you do it again, He's going to get you. You know? This idea of the penalty of sin. Jesus said in John 19.30, we'll get there someday, I hope, in the millennium perhaps, uh, when He said on the cross, it is finished. It's finished. That's, a, that's an accounting term in Greek that was used for accountants whenever a bill was paid in full. Sometimes it would be, it would be folded over and it kind of, if you will, uh, smashed down and it would have the word tetelestai. I mean, it's paid in full for good. You know what? I... Again, students will come to me and say, well, Cliff, if you tell everybody the penalty's been paid and your sins past, present, and future you know, are, are, are forgiven, they'll go crazy, right? In sinning, right? I say, they're going crazy anyway. It's like William uh, James Bryan Smith one time said, you're giving people a license to sin. Well, how are you doing without a license? <laughs> you doing okay without a license? You know, this is this idea. Like, like, like Spurgeon's saying, when I thought God was hard, it was easy to sin. When I finally understood that God forgave me for Christ's sake for everything I've ever done, it was more of a desire to please Him. And so, do we live like that? Do, do we live as if, well, I know He said He forgave me, but He's going to hold it against me. Jesus forgave us from the penalty of sin. So I'm going to ask you this question. What if this week you lived as if one who's forgiven and not just on probation? What, just, just try this today. Okay, just today. Maybe it's too hard for more than a day. What if today you just said, okay, when I walk out of this room today, I'm going to live today as if it is a fact that Jesus has freed me from sin because He paid the penalty. Just let, you know, we're at church, so you can do this. Just let that wash over you. Let that, let that begin a party and say, you know what, I'm going to live today, not 20 years, but today. With the, with the concept, with the, with the assurance that Jesus paid for all my sins. How would you approach today? Would you live out of a sense of gratitude and thankfulness and joy and confidence that today I can live my life for Him and in Him and with Him because it's all been covered? Because for some of us, we live life foreboding and wondering and worrying and we're not secure in that knowledge. What about this? Are you on probation or are you forgiven? Are you on probation or forgiven? And next week, I promise we'll get to this next one. I, I want to give you a preview just for this idea. This is a big idea. Big idea. I don't hear it very much, but it's all threaded through this, and that's this. Jesus to free us from the power of sin. The penalty has been paid. Is there any power 
over sin? Or do we just go through life struggling, constantly battling? We're going we're to deal with that next week. Is there any freedom from the power of sin? That's what we'll get. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for uh, the opportunity to think about these things and discuss these matters that are so practical in our everyday life. And I pray that you'll help us in this coming week. In this, not, not the week, today, just today. Help me, help us to live today in the awareness that the object of our faith is you, not us. We've changed our minds, the object of our faith. And we're going to live in the hilarious, joyful confidence that our debt has been paid. And we live as free people. Those who have been freed from the power of sin by the blood of Jesus. We praise and thank you for this. And we're going to live it today in Jesus' strong name. Amen.